Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. For those of you conversant with the world of legal tech, today's guest literally needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Noah Weisberg is a serial legal tech entrepreneur who's changing the way lawyers practice law. Most recently, he co-founded and became CEO of software company Zuva, which uses AI to extract the value out of documents and contracts within client businesses. Zuva, in turn, is a spinoff of Kira, which Noah co-founded and led as CEO from its start through to its exit to Latera. Kira continues to be a leader in the contract analysis space and is trusted by a majority of AmLaw 100 law firms. Noah has received multiple honors for his work and is often featured in mainstream and legal media. Interestingly enough, he is also the author of the world's first children's book on machine learning called Robbie the Robot Learns to Read, as well as AI for Lawyers, which is not for kids, but for adults and is the definitive guide to AI and law of practice. In our conversation, we talked about how his experience as a corporate lawyer at a global law firm in New York City led to the founding of Kira, how and why he decided to skip business school and jump straight into business, and how slow internet connection led to his biggest sales breakthrough. It was a fascinating conversation with one of the preeminent figures in legal tech. Enjoy. Noah, how are you? It's great to meet you. Very nice to finally meet you as well. I am very well, thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Where are we finding you? It looks beautiful out your window. I am in Toronto, and it is beautiful out my window. Both uh, the location is very nice, and Toronto in the summer is really lovely. It's probably 82, 83 out there, and sunny, and just really a nice day. Wow, that sounds perfect. Again, thanks for joining us today. I'd love to talk about your newest venture, Zuva, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. I have to be careful because I have a granddaughter named Zula. Oh, yeah. You could totally get tripped up with that. So if I if I start calling your company by my granddaughter's name, just correct me. <laughs> uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. How old is she? She is uh, turning four next month. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I should send you a copy of my children's book. It is on the list to talk about, as a matter of fact, Robbie the Robot. Yeah, no, so, so this is really why I'm here, is just so you can get like a free <laughs> copy, right? Like the whole thing, we're going through this sort of. Right. No, I think I think it's fabulous that you, that you wrote a children's book. What made you want to do that? Well, in the early days of Kira, the company that I previously co-founded and helped run, I spent a lot of time in the early days talking to senior lawyers, senior consultants, senior accountants. We'd show them what our software did and they'd be like, wow, like that's pretty cool. And then I'd be like, they'd be like, how did it do that? And I'd be like, well, I use machine learning. And do you know what that is? And everybody would be like, oh yeah, I know what machine learning is. And I was like, this is like 2013, 2014, right? And I knew enough <laughs> lawyer, like, enough that they like sort of vaguely do what it was. But I was like, would you like me to just give a little refresher on it just so that, you know, we're all on the same page or something like that? And they'd always be like, yeah, that'd be great. And so <laughs> I uh, got pretty practiced at giving like a really simple, basic explanation of what machine learning is. And at the same time, I had young kids. 
And I was reading a lot of children's books over and over again. And some of them are amazing, right? Like there's Little Blue Truck or Goodnight Moon or anything by Sandra Boynton. Like they are works of art. But some of them are really bad. Yes, they are. Right? Like just really, really bad. And I was like, and they seem to sell okay. Like some of the really bad ones, right? Like, and so I was like, you know, I think I can hit the 50th percentile of this genre. And so uh, I sort of sat and like, you know, counted up the words in children's books one night. <laughs> Ranges about 150 to 300 words. Look at all that. Like, there's this many words per page and all that kind of stuff. And then, oh, the tech guy writing a children's book. No, 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 totally. So I originally tried to actually get my co-founder, who has a comp side PhD, to do the writing since I thought he would be a lot more credible. Uh, the book is on machine learning for children. And so I thought the guy with the comp side PhD would be more credible than the ex-lawyer. But, you know, my, eventually I got kind of tired of waiting and I sat down one day and I sort of wrote it. And then I got him and a bunch of other people to contribute to uh, revisions on it. And our original hope was that it sort of might become this viral sensation, right? We actually sent out copies to all sorts of people like who had kids who were prominent, like Mark Zuckerberg got a copy. Uh, mailed out. They were like, one Facebook post from Mark Zuckerberg and like, everybody will know about us. That didn't really happen. But the thing that it turned out was that it became a thing that a lot of people liked getting. Like, it turns out there's many people you're talking to who have kids, who have grandkids. The joke of all the innovation people at law firms or tech people at law firms is like, well, this is about the level of our partners, right? (laughs) I was thinking the same thing, Noah, but I wasn't going to say it. Or like, you know, not even the tech and innovation people, but like a law firm leader or someone like that always would like it. But it became actually a really fun thing to have done. And actually, as part of our spin out that created Zuva, we took the copyright in the book to the new company so we can still keep putting them out. And for our listeners, you can find it on Amazon and it's a bargain. Yeah, it's got uh, good reviews and one really bad review from a teacher who, like, someone who was a teacher, and there's like a teacher in the story who's not exactly the villain, but teaches the robot how to read learning a rules based approach, and it doesn't work super well. So the robot switches to like a machine learning based approach where he reads lots of books, and from reading all the books, he just sort of assembles a sense of what language is and how it works. And so a teacher read it, like, literally. She was like, actually, grammar rules are super important, and the teacher character is not at all a strong <laughs> character. One star. <laughs> really a mean and wonderful review. Oh, my goodness. Well, if you only got one bad review, then you're doing something incredibly well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say there's a ton of reviews. So if you do buy it and you like it or you don't, please put up reviews. Well, and then you wrote, uh, so as if educating children's not enough, you decide to educate lawyers. And you wrote a book called AI for Lawyers, How Artificial Intelligence is Adding Value, Amplifying Expertise, and Transforming Careers. Yeah, that took a fair bit more work, it turned out. It's not illustrated, I presume. Uh, there are pictures in it. There's like graphs and stuff like that. But the children's book literally is 256 words. The grown-up book crushed my early COVID, like the whole like early lockdown in that summer when everybody was talking about like all the Netflix shows they were watching and like all these things. I think during that stretch, my wife and I made it through like an episode of Succession in four months, five months. <laughs> <laughs> 
a lot more work, but I am proud to have done it. I, I think it's a good work that Alex, again, my co-founder in the old business and I managed to put together with a bunch of help from others and a bunch of contributions from others. Like there's lots of segments and even chapters written by other people in the book who were kind of more expert in their area than Alex and I. Still, even despite the fact that we didn't crank out all the content, it still was a ton of work. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, and, it's, and it seems like it's been well received. Yeah, we have uh, more Amazon reviews from that. None of the none of the one stars. And uh, I, I think people who've read it say it's pretty good. The thing that made me happy, at the, my dad used to be a partner at a large Canadian law firm. And he was able to make it, and he's not afraid to give harsh feedback. And the thing that made me pleased is he was able to make it through it in like three or four hours and thought it was good. And that was kind of my vision. Someone who's a partner at SafeEarth or Skadden or Sullivan and Cromwell sitting down on a Sunday afternoon, spending two, three, four hours with the book and coming away with something like not hating me for having spent those two to four hours on it uh, was kind of the goal. So like you certainly could spend longer on it, but I don't think you have to. Well, it's great. Your dad liked it. (laughs) Tough, uh, tough crowd. Yeah. Well, I find the books interesting because obviously you're an overnight success, you know, 12 years in the making with Kira and now with with Zuva. But as I've listened to you talk about your career, and I'd like to talk about some of the stuff I know you've talked about in other places as well, educating and getting people to understand technology and the uses of technology has to have been a theme you've dealt with because you came to the market in what, 2010? Well, maybe not quite to the market, but you... Yeah, 20, I, yeah so I quit being a lawyer in 2010 and then started on this in 2011, but uh, tech took us a little bit to get uh, to the point where we were bringing it to market. So probably 2012, 2013, I think 2013 was when we first started getting people to try it. So, which raises a question for me, a number of questions for me. If you look at your background leading up to that moment, and I, I've heard you talk about it, it's the uh, it's the background of a of a classic lawyer, you know, on on the fast track, poli sci major. You started your doctorate, got your master's in poli sci, go to NYU Law School, and you get a job as an associate in the M and A group of a of Weil, which is a fabulous firm, great firm, you know, great firm. And then you tell this story about looking at the inefficiencies and in the, the market sustainability of, of the due diligence practice and how that gave you the idea, which ultimately became Kira. And my question is, there are many of us that see the market inefficiencies and the challenges that the practice of law brings and the, and the ability of technology to be able to fix it. But very few people actually quit their job of being a lawyer and go actually do it. What in your background, you said your dad was a lawyer. You don't come from an entrepreneurial background, I I take it. How does one take this leap? So I think there's lots of lawyers who love being lawyers. But my observation when I was practicing, and this doesn't apply to everyone, was that there were, say, like a good third of my colleagues who actually would have rather been doing something artistic, like writing a play or screenplay or a novel. And maybe they did in their spare time. And there were about a third of people who felt like getting into a business role. And there were maybe a third of people who were just like, this is the right job for me. And I think I kind of fell into that second, like, despite the the children's book and stuff, like, I, I am not meant to be a poet or anything like that. But I always was really attracted and interested in the business side of what we were doing. 
And I think that helps you makes being a corporate lawyer a lot easier, right? Like you actually care about the underlying business fundamentals of the deals that are happening. And I think like many people, there were lots of things I loved about being a big law associate. I thought Wow was a terrific firm. I had so many like, smart, wonderful colleagues. A lot of the work was intellectually interesting. You know, I was learning stuff and it, it's just like a really nice, pleasant job in a lot of ways, not every single moment. At the same time, I didn't think it was what I felt like doing for the rest of my life. When I saw the most, I uh, got lucky on a couple of deals where I was able to sort of be in the room with some of the most senior corporate people at while. And when I saw them, I was both very impressed by them. Like they were really, really, really smart. And it wasn't what I felt like doing for the rest of my life. I could also tell. And I had a pretty inside track on that since my dad had had a good run. And so I knew growing up a lot of corporate lawyers. And I think it's a really great job. I also think like you work for your money in that job. Yes, you do. Like it really is day in, day out. Like people get paid very well, even more so now. Right. But it's not a joke. Like you're showing up every day to work. And as a concept, I kind of thought that not showing up to work and as it turns out, actually starting a business was more work than being an associate. But I was going to say you went from the frying pan into the fire, I think. Into the fire. However, then you sell your business and you have a little bit more. Not that I actually am working fairly hard right now, too, but that's kind of by choice a little bit more than it was before. And I thought that just being in a business role would be a better fit for me and more fun for me, even though I think I was an okay lawyer. And I think people would have said I was an okay lawyer. I thought this would be more fun. And I don't know if I would have ever quit, but like many people, I think I would have had the desire, but I don't know if I ever would have done it. Though I was seriously looking at trying to get into a business role, but eventually my wife, who I had imported to while, quit and <laughs> felt like taking time off. And that, like, I don't know if I would have jumped off or not if it hadn't been for her quitting, but certainly with her quitting, it made it a pretty easy choice. And so you quit and you 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 connect with your co-founder to talk about starting. Yeah. So the first thing I did, and if anybody out there is thinking about quitting and listening to this, I would highly recommend it, which is I quit and I sat and I did nothing for a while. Like really like traveled a bit. I read a lot. I exercised a lot. And I thought a lot about ideas to attack greater efficiency in law, which I saw as this area that had the potential for a business. And I also thought about whether I should get a job at an existing business because I thought I, I still had lots to learn about running a business, which I still do, but less than back then. But I think that time period, uh, it was about six months between quitting at while, which was like around this time of year back in, I think it was like 10 days, 11 days from the day that we're talking back in 2010. Uh, it took me until January to really get going on this idea. And I think that uh, maybe December, November, December 2010 to get going on this idea. And I think that period of time was just incredibly valuable that you can't really think about what you'd actually like to, if it's something different than going to another law firm, you can't really think about that in evenings and weekends. And having the space free to really think about what I felt like doing was exceptionally valuable time. So if anybody out there is thinking about leaving, 
and not just going to another firm, like I really can't encourage you more to take the time off. How did you support yourself during this time period? Because a lot of people are not willing to accept the financial risk associated with this kind of venture. So it was pre-kids was one advantage at the start. Partway through, it got a little hairier, number one. Number two, my wife decided to go back to work, which helped. And number three, my wife and I had been pretty financially conservative in the days of working at Wild. Right. So literally, I can remember it's like late at night, like (laughs) I certainly had a salary where I could afford to take a taxi, but I would like walk or take the subway often. And, you know, we lived okay, but I I was able to get into a pretty good financial place through that period. And that gave me the freedom to not take a salary. And the way that I kind of rationalized it was thinking about like another thing I might have done leaving the law firm, feeling like getting into a business role has gone to business school. And I was like, well, if I went to business school, it would cost me $40,000 a year to go to business school plus all the expenses. And so that's going to be like $80,000 a year plus the expenses. And if I, instead of going to business school, I just tried doing a business and put that $80,000 into the business as opposed to, and you can't get a loan for it and stuff, but I, I had been sort of assiduous about saving that I thought I would learn as much and maybe end up in a better place. Both turned out to be true. It worked out. It worked out. Yeah. It took a little bit longer than two years, but I think I did come out in a better place than I would have had I gone to business school. One of the many things that's interesting about your story is the first few years of Kira, where if I recall listening to what you said, there are four of you working for the company with a software that perhaps didn't work at the level you wanted it to work at in a market that wasn't yet ready to buy for software that doesn't work. There must have been days where you're thinking, what am I doing here? What advice to give people who need to push? Because there's a lot of startups that fail at that point. They just walk away. Yeah, you persevered. How? It's interesting. I remember talking to having my co-founder and my co-founder's dad and maybe like my wife or my dad there at a conversation. And they were like, we thought you should quit. right? Like, and like all the relatives thought we should quit. But I think my co-founder and I had a, a lot of faith in the idea that this was something that should exist and that we could probably build it. And in fact, I think we were more worried about our ability to build it than we were that people would accept it. Though, as we got it built, the second one became something scarier to us. But we really believed that this should exist. Uh, We were probably too early, but in a way, it was really good that we were too early because it gave us time to sort of screw up and get the technology right and get our story right about how lawyers could kind of make more money being more efficient and get sort of a little bit more sophisticated about that story. So it kind of worked, but it definitely was pretty scary and not great in the early days. I mentioned uh, there was like a stretch of time when we had our first kid and I kind of had this negative salary where we were helping pay our employee. Like we didn't have revenue coming in. We didn't have any financing. And so we were sort of paying for employees and host like server hosting and all that kind of stuff out of our savings, right? I had this negative salary and I had a kid and My wife was sort of back at work, but really felt like staying home longer. And it was a rough, rough, rough stretch where you kind of realize you're like, okay, I've spent like several thousand dollars on this. I spent like a lot of years of my life where I could have been pretty highly compensated if I'd stayed in law. And this might just not work, but I still believe it's going to work if we keep pushing at it. And eventually it did. It's an interesting thing about being the first mover, isn't it? 
on the one hand, there are advantages that come with it, but it's a scary place to be out there on that ledge. Yeah, I think there's a lot. It's interesting. With Zuvo, we've kind of decided to do something that I think is also a bit first mover-y. But uh, I think there's a lot to be said for just going after something that exists that's not done that well, where people have kind of already made the intellectual leap into using the new software. I think for us, it just, this has been a more fun way to approach things. And, and it has been fun being a first mover there, but it's really challenging. I'm always interested in these sort of serendipitous moments that help people along their way to the, their career. And you, you've obviously had a number of them. But you tell the story, I heard you tell the story about how because you had a bad internet connection, it caused you to change your demo model into a demo model that really, that really sort of took off. Yeah. So Can you repeat that story? It's a great story. For sure. So I was living in New York at the time and theoretically fiber optic cable was supposed to have penetrated New York fully. But in fact, on my street, like it just didn't come down the block. And it was, my internet was like slow, slow, slow. And it was so bad that I could not, I think we had a phone, like a voice over IP phone at the time, like it wasn't all cell phones. And the internet was so bad that I could not simultaneously do a screen share and talk on a WebEx call, WebEx back then. And, and so what it forced us to do, I, I had that happen a couple of times. And it went really badly and things would get all garbled and people couldn't hear me when I was uploading documents. And so what we decided to do, there was especially a phase when you were uploading documents into Kira where it was sort of bandwidth intensive and it was just too much for the internet. And so what I decided to do was we would set people up with access to Kira and we'd send them the documents during the demo. And I had them all like kind of queued up in an email ready to go. And I'd say, hey, instead of me giving you a demo, why don't you walk through it? And I'll be on video watching you do it and telling you what to do. And that way you can experience it. And it really worked well because I think one of the core problems that AI faced then, maybe a little bit less now, is that people didn't believe that it actually worked, right? Like they would think that you were faking them. And they thought that for a couple of reasons. Like number one, it was kind of incredible what our software did back then. Like I don't know that it would seem that way now, but people would see it and they'd be like actually wowed that the software was doing this. Number one. Number two, there were some people in market just doing things that I think were a little exaggerated. And it made people question even more whether AI actually did the stuff that people said it did. And so I've been on the receiving end of some of those presentations. Yes. Yeah, totally. It's magic. It's magic. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's like we were always really clear that it wasn't magic, right? And that the software made mistakes and that there were all sorts of problems with it. But I think giving it to people and giving them the original documents and being like, hey, these are some documents we have. You can try these or take your own. Like, we don't care. Up to you and put them through and we'll walk through and you'll get to see what happens. I think it really helped create trust in what we were doing. And I think that trust in selling people stuff, especially if it's new, maybe artificial intelligence is exceptionally important. And actually that trust strand is something I think we sort of performed well at at Kira. Like not to say as your team gets bigger, there are times when people on your team don't say stuff that might be more exaggerated than we would have liked. But I think overall in market, I think we had a pretty good reputation for delivering on the thing that we said we'd do. And interestingly with Zuva, we're actually trying to sell as much as we can 
without even talking to people. So that means like you can come to our website and you can literally like sign up and try our software online without ever talking to us. And people are. And for that latter business model, you need to lean even more into being trustworthy, right? Like put up information about the software so that people can get their questions answered without talking to you. And then because you have a free trial up, like if you're (laughs) telling them stuff that's not true, they're going to figure out pretty quickly that it's not true. And so I think that leaning into trust is something that probably came naturally to us, but is something that I think was a big ingredient in our success. Yeah, I, I think it was, uh, you know, as, as you know, we're, we at Cypher, we use Kira for a couple of reasons. One of them is the team assessed the software and loved the capabilities and the ease of use and all the technical things. But you managed to create this reputation and trust is the perfect word to describe it, where the cynical user base within the firm and lawyers, as you know, are cynical, cynical people. I know, well, we trust Kira. We know the name, we know the brand, we trust the people. It made our job of adoption much easier. Yeah, I think it's important to be kind of honest about where the problems are, right? Like with artificial intelligence, people are naturally not going to trust you. With the AI for Lawyers book, we really tried to not dance around. Is sort of trust, kind of a slightly different, but I think related concept which is just that like attack the problem that's the real problem. And with the AI for Lawyers, the real problem that I experienced time and time again talking to people in demos was just, I think there are a lot of lawyers who are very skeptical about the idea that being more efficient helps their business, right? Like if you bill hourly, how does it help you if you spend less hours doing a project? And I think there's people who won't say it, but like you go to a partner, there's people who will. And then there's times when you go and speak at a partner retreat and you're there and everybody's had a bunch of drinks and, you know, they start breaking out the real questions. And I think it's important to not kind of gloss over those real questions, but to actually attack it head on. Because if people don't sort of trust that it's it's not enough, even if they may trust you, being like, trust me, this is going to be good for your business is like a bridge too far. And so knowing where people don't trust you and really trying to focus very hard on building that trust, I think it's just another part of that trust theme and one that we push really hard on with for lawyers and other stuff right now. How have you seen over the 10, 11, 12 years of Kira, that dynamic change? The lawyer, how is this good for our business? It may work or maybe it hasn't changed. I don't know that it has changed. I think there are lawyers and we definitely had customers who were kind of enlightened and understood that that you didn't need to sell them, that being more efficient was in their best interest. They believed that if they delivered great service at a great price to their customers, that things would work out well for them. Or they were on a fixed fee model where it just made sense for them to be more efficient. But I think there were lots of people who were, and I haven't been selling this for about a year or so, but my sense like not too long ago was that there's still a lot of lawyers who are worried about how being more efficient plays with their business model. And I think that's pretty natural. So it probably got easier over time since at least you could point to lots of other firms doing it. And so things kind of work out that way. I think there's some firms where they maybe care a little bit less, like especially some of the very high-end firms, I think we're just in such a financial place that they were kind of like today, I think there's lots of firms that 
are turning away work, but there were always some that were just so busy that they were good with the idea of just being ultra efficient. But I think it's still probably the biggest barrier to efficiency adoption in big law is that idea that I think a lot of lawyers aren't convinced that being more efficient helps them. No, I think that's right. I've sort of pushed against that notion for a long time. And like you, I I've, I still push against it. And I think 10, 15 years later, you would have thought that Boulder would have been up the hill, but it's not. One of the interesting quirks is that there is this stereotype out there that it's like the older partners who are kind of anti-innovation because they're just like, you know, dinosaurs or something like that. And my experience was that there were lots of more senior lawyers because they kind of saw the bigger picture of what was going on and that clients really cared a lot about efficiency and that there were lots of opportunities to sell clients new stuff if you could think of innovative ways or better ways to kind of price and package it. That there was like tons of opportunity if you could be more efficient. And so there were some junior, like younger partners who were very supportive, but I actually think a lot of more experienced lawyers were among the best supporters that we had. I found the same dynamic. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, like it, it's definitely not that you need to just wait for the current generation of like 60 year olds to retire. Like, right. At all the case. No, that's right. Well, talk to us about your newest venture. So you, you, you sell Kira to Latera. Among among other acquisitions Latera has made over the last couple of years, and I've got a couple of questions about that. But in turn, sort of a month later, you spin out of Latera uh, Zuva. Yes. So so actually, and the spin out was kind of part of the original deal. So what happened is Latera approached us in early 2021, seeing if we and we'd known them for Avanish, their CEO at the time, for a long time. Thought they were great, but we didn't think. The timing was right for us in terms of doing a deal. Uh, number one, we had kind of like a flat 2020, not terrible, but just not like growth, which made sense since a lot of the law firms where we were really strong were really focused on like getting Zoom set up and those kinds of like bread and butter things that they needed to do. But we felt like we'd done a really strong job in setting ourselves up to win well going forward that we continue to invest really heavily in the product. And in our team, and we thought that those investments would yield as the market started to shift. And I think we've, we've actually seen that play out. So that was thing number one. Thing number two is we had lots of cash. And thing number three is we had a couple additional businesses that we'd been putting money in to develop. And we hadn't seen a payout yet, but we felt good about their potential. And so we, we didn't think the timing was right for a deal. But Latero was like, hey, come on, guys, like, we would like to do a deal now. And so eventually we kind of sent them over enough numbers. They sent us back a number for the business that was a good, fair number and certainly was one that made a kind of life changing impact in my co founder and my life. And our investor thought we should take. But Alex and I weren't decided, we're kind of disinclined to take it. And then we started reflecting on Latera and we realized, or really this, this was more funny because I think Alex thought I was insane for even proposing this. But I realized that Latera cared deeply about the law firm market and they had some corporate stuff, but these two additional businesses that we were trying to do were focused outside the law firm market. And I was like, you know, if I was Avanish, the CEO of Latera, I would actually shut these businesses down because they're not 
law firm focus, number one. And number two, I'm trying to be a profitable business. And these things are money pits right now. And so I actually thought in a weird way that the business might be worth more to Latera if these things weren't in it. And so we proposed it to HG and Latera and HG are the sort of private equity backers of Latera. And they were like, actually, this makes a lot of sense. Like we like this deal. And then it took a lot of work with our lawyers and their lawyers and HG and Latera to sort of get the mechanics of it to work well. But I I think that we were able to create a lot of value in the course of the deal. And for me, it meant that I got to keep working on a problem, which I find super interesting, which is the idea that if we can pull convert contracts into data, that there's just a whole lot of additional insight and faster work that can come from that. It wasn't what we started Kira to do, but it's something that we realized was a really big problem going through it. We got pretty set on trying to fix. So it means getting to do that, getting to work with a great group of people. So we got to take 34 people from Kira into Zuva to help start the business. And we got to keep a copy of our underlying IP that was really good, the AI that was really good at finding details and contracts. We got to keep a copy of that. And that just seemed like such a unique opportunity that I felt like doing it. So what Zuva does right now is our product is an API. So an API is like a computer language only version of the underlying tech at Kira. So it enables people to build it into their own system. So if you had a contract management system, for example, and you felt like adding a feature to it where it could find details and contracts, you could build it yourself, but it's hard to build it yourself. Or you could embed our API and you'd be set up right away. Same thing if you're doing contract negotiation, same thing if you're trying to get the details of contracts into a an ERP system or a CRM or an HR information system. Any of those or anything else could be sort of charged up with contract intelligence by just embedding our code. And we've tried to make it really easy to do that with the new business. So I thought it was kind of a fun and interesting business to do, very different than what we were doing before. And for me, that means an additional opportunity to learn and to keep working on a problem that I think is a valuable problem with people who I think are great. So I kept doing it. That's fabulous. That sounds like a very unique deal that's come along. That's uh, very unique. It sort of fits perfectly what you're looking for. Yeah, I don't uh, <laughs> I don't know how much. It was a lot more work, I think, to do it as a spin out. Like just the legal getting it to work well was a lot of work. But I, I think by doing it, we did a deal that really sort of put Kira's customers in a great home for them, like with a vendor who they like, and I think many cases like and have good feelings towards and is just thinking about them and just focused on law firms and gave a bunch of our employees really good exp- opportunities to expand their careers at a company that was bigger and doing more stuff than Kira, while at the same time enabling us to kind of really focus more narrowly on a problem that we were really interested in Akira, but I think uh, would have had a hard time focusing on. The Latera acquisition of Kira, of Clocktomizer, of others, seems to me to be an example, and I'm interested in your reaction, of a strategy of consolidation in the marketplace. They're hardly the only example of that over the last, uh, you know, my case just got bought and had purchased some companies before. Clio's bought some things. Where do you see this trend in the marketplace going? Well, I think, first of all, I think 
I don't think we needed to consolidate or anything like that. Like there was no market dynamic forcing us into Latera or Thomson Reuters or Lexuses or whatever grasp. I think for us, it was just a good deal on uh, sort of financially, it was a good deal. And I think the spin out was really kind of unique. And I really credit HG and Latera for being sort of open-minded and creative enough to help embrace it. So, but I think in terms of consolidation overall, like Latera's overarching idea is that law firms like buying tech from less places. And so if you're the kind of vendor of choice for law firm CIOs, then it's going to be easier for a law firm to buy your tech than it will be someone else's tech. So what they'd like to do is just give their existing customers more things to buy from them. And I think they're more of a buy than build culture, if that makes sense. Building out a new product, they go and buy products that I think are successful. And I think there's some like Kira where, you know, we didn't necessarily have the much of a customer traction issue. Like we had a good brand. We had customers who knew about us. We had a lot of good customer relationships. But the thing that I can see flowing into Latera that I think is somewhat the same intellectual idea as Rain in Court is that I, I could imagine once Latera kind of gets everything consolidated, I could imagine them being in a good place to buy other smaller things where like pieces of software that they know law firms could use and that just are having trouble getting commercial traction. And I could see them making those purchases and then sort of rolling them out to law firms in a way that law firms would like to consume them. And I think they're well positioned to do that. I think Thompson Reuters is well positioned to do that. Lexus, I think, is well positioned to do that. And I think that's what Rain and Court is also trying to do without all the acquisitions. And I think it's a good model, right? Like when we came along with Kira, there weren't so many new school legal tech vendors, right? Like it was the corporate lawyer desktop when we started Kira was like Microsoft Word and Microsoft Outlook and, and Excel. And yeah, well, maybe Excel. Maybe Excel for the sophisticated user. It's probably like Word and Outlook and like some kind of document comparison software and the document management system. And now there's like so many, I, I think partially actually inspired by our success with Kira, but more maybe inspired by the underlying problem that I was thinking about when I left Wild, which is that corporate lawyers spend vast amounts of time doing work that they shouldn't do right? That just is time consuming. They're not that good at, they hate, and the clients hate paying for. And for us, that meant contracts. But I think there's a whole bunch of other things that lawyers and corporate lawyers spend time on that sort of fits that same bill. And so I think it's natural that lots of other tech gets built for that. But I think the problem that a lot of the tech coming along now has is kind of breaking through the noise. Like when we came through, we broke through because there wasn't that much noise and we were doing something cool. But now I think you might be able to, you might be doing something cool, but so are so many other people. And so what I think the sort of bull case for Latera is that once they get everything that they bought, like they bought a lot of stuff, but once they get that consolidated, I could imagine them able to pick up other cool young softwares that have had a harder time breaking in, but are great technology and great technique, great teams and in a great offering. And I could see Latera potentially picking some of those up and enabling those places to go bigger and being able to pick up some of those offerings for like a much lower price than they would have to pay for something like us. Right. 
It'll be fascinating to watch. I know we've gone way past our allotted time. Do you have time for one more? One more? Oh, yeah. No, totally. I suspect you and I could probably talk for hours upon hours. I think we probably could. So take me out two or three years. Where do you see Zuva at that time period? Yeah. So with Zuva, we have a belief about the contracts market. And for Zuva to achieve to be all of the company it can be, sort of belief about the contracts market kind of has to play out a certain way. So let me take you through what I think is going to happen in the contracts market, and then we can talk about Zuba fitting into it. So I think we've long had the belief that businesses would run better if they had a better sort of handle on their contracts. They'd make better decisions. There's all sorts of important pieces of information that are stored in contracts that businesses can't realistically get at it. And so they make decisions without it. Number one. Number two, if they were able to contract faster, like literally contracting faster is more revenue. Like if you sign a contract in May as opposed to June and it's sort of a recurring contract, like basically the way it works out is like that's an extra month's worth of revenue for you, like an extra 8% or whatever on that contract that you make. So there's tons of advantages just with those two problems in contracting, not even counting a whole bunch of others. And I think it seems reasonable to me that contracts become this next sort of enterprise system that you have once upon a time, like even a CRM, the thing where you keep your customer details, which I'm sure I don't need to explain to you, like those were done on spreadsheets and then systems came in, right? Like first with things like Siebel, then Salesforce, and now they're totally like a natural system. Then uh, marketing systems, then HR information systems, all of which the biggest companies had, but they weren't really democratized. And I think those systems have kind of come into place and big businesses are totally dependent on them. And I think it seems reasonable to me that contracts will become a important part of business operations in the way that those other ones have. And I think we're starting to see that happen with all the money that's flown into the contract management market. I think it's going in there for a bunch of different reasons, but I think the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that this change is happening where contracts are becoming central to how businesses operate. And so if contracts become central to how businesses operate, one implication of that is you're going to see growth in the contract management system market. But I think there's going to be a lot of situations where everyday business systems also get sort of contract enhanced. So not only do you use your contract pod AI or Ironclad or Agileoft or Conga, but you also have your CRM and your ERP and your HRIS enhanced with contract details in use in the sort of day-to-day system that your people use, right? Like are the finance team, are the sales ops team going to learn an additional system or are they just going to use the system they use every day? I think it'll probably depend company by company, but but I believe we're going to see contract details all over the place in enterprise. And in order for contract details to get all over the place in enterprise, I think you need to have an easy way to get those contract details out of contracts. And we know from Kira that it's really hard to build the tech to do that. And I think at Zuva, we sort of came into it with what we think was the world's best tech at pulling data out of contracts from Kira. And we've got the team to keep advancing it. And so our hope is that as people keep pulling details out of contracts, that we're going to be powering part of that across a whole lot of different systems. And so really, if that works out the way that we think it can work out, I think the business will work out relatively well. Frankly, I probably think it belongs as part of a larger tech business. 
right? There are some very large vendors of APIs out there, and the kind of like Microsoft's and Google's and AWS's of the world. In fact, Google has an offering in our area. And the way we think about it is we believe our tech compares pretty well to the Google offering. And so the way we think about it is, is like, if this is a problem that Google thinks is worth solving, and we think we solve it pretty well relative to theirs, then that's a good space to be in. It's a good space to be in. And and it's a good space both because of that and because of the fact that contracts, we think people are starting to recognize that they matter and that as people realize that they matter, the thing that we do that we're, we think really, I don't know if we're uniquely good at, but certainly we're highly focused on that and have been focused on it for a really long time, that that'll become quite valuable and hard to get elsewhere. But we'll see. With Kira, I would say we were right on our theory, which was kind of if you built software to make lawyers faster and more accurate at doing diligence, then they would come. But it took longer than we thought for that theory to play out. So yeah, I think the thing that I'm talking about could play out over the next three years, but it could be 13. Hopefully it's three. I'll hope for that for you as well, Noah. Well, thanks so much. I, I know we're we're over a lot of time. I really appreciate you spending the time chatting with us and uh, good luck with Zuva and congratulations on Kira. Thanks so much for having me on here and sometime we'll have to get together in person. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.